Hello, and welcome to the Outlier Podcast, the podcast for everyone who's interested in building better homes. My name is Sandra, and I am hosting this podcast with Anthony, the founder and lead designer at Outlier Studio, who is passionate about creating beautiful and high-performing homes. Together, we sit down once a month to chat with industry experts and to answer your questions about high-performance homes. We want to educate Australians about the possibilities of energy-efficient design and to change the way we build houses today. We hope you join us on that journey. Are you unsure of the benefits of ventilation for your home? Then this episode is for you. We sit down with Joel Seagren from Fantech to dive deep into the topic of ventilation. Joel has a ton of knowledge and experience working with different systems for all types of homes. He explains the benefits of having a controlled ventilation system and how the different setups work. He also talks about when to involve an HRV engineer like himself and how much you will have to pay for the different systems. This episode is a tiny bit technical, but Joel does a great job at explaining complex setups and terminology in a simple way and using facts and data to support his arguments. I don't know if you know this, Joel, but you're actually called the HIV guy in our office or a lot of the times that's what you're being known as. And it's great to have you on today to actually get to know you and know more about what you do and talk a little bit about what HIV systems mean, what they do and how they perform. Um, so, yeah, maybe you could start off by telling us in your own words, uh, not just by our little like unprofessional description, what is it that you do? Thank you very much. Lovely to be here, Sandra and Anthony. Um, I'm going to have to check that domain, HRV guy, and see whether it's still available. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> uh, so off the back of that, yes, HRV or MVHR, mechanical ventilation with heat recovery, as it can be known, ERV. That's kind of our, um, or my lifeblood and one or two others at Fantech. Um, it's a, a small and growing portion of the Fantech business, but it is, is not a, a big chunk of it at this point in time. Um, but in terms of day-to-day -day activity, we're, um, yeah, we're basically helping um, design high-performance heat recovery ventilation systems or um, ventilation systems in general to uh, achieve those high-performance outcomes. It's been something that's been missing in the market in earlier years, uh, and particularly in the sort of class one single dwelling space. So um, yeah, day-to-day -day kind of involvement is helping uh, assemble designs with building designers and consultants to produce these high quality outcomes. When do you think uh, the very first HRV system went into a residence in, in your uh, career? Yeah, so I know our New Zealand arm of Fantech actually sold some of the earlier systems into Australia. So I reckon we've got to be approaching almost 10 years now as our first, uh, Fantech's first involvement there. Um, we still speak to those customers. They're still purchasing filters and so forth. So we know those units are up and operational. Um, yeah, they're, they're long life systems that um, we expect are going to be around for kind of life of the building. So what are some of the benefits, do you think, for, for mechanical ventilation? Yeah, yep. So it's, it's been kind of well practiced in that commercial space for a long time, that when you've got uh, an occupant in a room, there's really clear design guidelines around 10 litres per second per person in an office space. But what we've had in the resi space is uh, this kind of 
belief or understanding that um, as long as you've got an operable window in a residential building, the ventilation's all taken care of. So we don't need to supply that fresh air any longer. Um, we all obviously know that's a little bit of a bit of a farce in reality um, yep. <laughs> for a number of reasons, but principally one of those is people don't open their windows and leave them open. So, and perhaps for a variety of reasons, noise, air quality, security, is, is a raft of reasons, comfort, why they're not doing that. So, um, yeah, mechanical ventilation in the resi context, uh, whilst newer, is just really doing what's been done in commercial buildings for a long time uh, in terms of providing that continuous flow rate of fresh air. Uh, and on the flip side of that, it's also the moisture and uh, other contaminant removal in that space. Well behind the Europeans in doing that sort of stuff. They've, they've been onto that. Clearly some climatic things have made it um, much more imperative. And, but also I think, and probably everyone agrees, a slightly different approach to building design and construction. It's, it's not got such a cost-driven element in it. Yeah, that's literally what we discuss on this podcast. <laughs> I feel like it, almost in every episode how it's different and how we're a bit behind. Um, so what I'm interested in, in the commercial space, you've mentioned that, you know, there's rules around this and that you need to have some sort of mechanical ventilation. Um, why is that? Why is it, what are the rules and reasonings behind there being, them being mandatory in those spaces? In commercial versus residential. Yeah. 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 So I, I guess in commercial, let's say an office um, building, for example, it's, it's unlikely that you've got sufficient operable glazing in order to even come close to enough fresh air. Mm. Uh, particularly um, high-rise type stuff, there's not a lot of, and there may not be anything at all that's operable. Uh, so very quickly that became a case of um, elevated CO2 levels and contaminant levels and being a problem in those spaces. Um, Resi, on the other hand, as we've mentioned, can be operated a little bit differently depending on the people and depending on the climate zone. Uh, and so we've not really thought about it. The reality is, unfortunately, we're probably spending more time in our home, way more time in our home than we are in the office space. So, and particularly post-COVID, a lot of remote working now, the, the real focus on um, indoor air quality in resi buildings is coming to the fore. Yeah, that's a great point you make there. I think it has been emphasised over the last few years, um, definitely. Um, I read a study that uh, touched on the fact that we all believe that we open our windows a lot more than what we do. Um, some people, you know, believe that they have this inside-outside sort of lifestyle of which they live, and they may be true in some climates in Australia, but for where we are down in the southern states, it's, uh, it's a bit more cooler. Um, it was something like, you know, it was into the 90% of the time those windows were closed. And I like to just tell people, like, you know, if you've got your windows closed, we've got you covered. It's okay. It's uh, mechanical ventilation is, um, is yeah, it's just takes care of that for you. Definitely. And the other side of that, we've sort of focused a little bit on fresh air supply in the resi context, but the, uh, the, the matching side to that is um, extract of contaminants and moisture. So contaminants is kind of fairly intuitive that we're exhaling CO2. Uh, if we do any gas-related cooking or heating, we've got CO2 as a, as a product there. We've also got volatile organic compounds coming off um, sort of synthetic carpets and laminexes and things like that. 
Um, so we've got stuff to remove out of a building. The other part is, um, as well as that sort of internal health, it's actually building health as well. So we obviously in sort of that high performance space go to a lot of effort to manage what we'll call interstitial condensation. So essentially your wall and roof assemblies getting wet. Mm. Now, ultimately, there's still some moisture transport in there and continuous ventilation in the building, uh, inside the building, helps draw away that moisture also. So not only is there a personal indoor air quality kind of thing, there's a building durability uh, function to that continuous ventilation. And that's something that's perhaps not quite as intuitive. We kind of think of the indoor plaster lining uh, being our sealed box, but it's not quite like that. We have got some moisture movement through uh, wall and roof assemblies and keeping that uh, assembly healthy also contributes to indoor health, but durability. Not just the occupants of the home, but the, the health of the building. Yeah, I love that. That's um, great. I think another point, I'm not sure, if, like that that just always comes to my forefront of my, my head and that tells you a lot about how I operate and what is important to me. Is, isn't it true? Like, I mean, obviously, if you have mechanical ventilation, a lot of times the buildings are extremely airtight, so they don't let a lot of um, air through. Uh, they're sealed pretty well, which has the additional benefit other than being thermally comfortable and, you know, all the good stuff with condensation and, and air quality and, and building longevity. Um, it also means that you have to, you don't have to dust as much. There's not as many pollutants coming in, um, which I experienced firsthand when Anthony and I went to a, um, a, yeah, passive house building with an uh, HIV system. And I was just, yeah, it was amazing. It fills us out. It doesn't let any you know, little creepers and, and insects and stuff come in because it's airtight and that's another thing that's important to me. Um, but also you probably won't have to dust that, that much. And, you know, especially for people with allergies, I am starting to definitely feel the hay fever coming onto me this season. Um, and yeah, I think that's another added, it's probably not the most important one, but it's definitely another nice little plus that, um, that airtightness brings to the table. That's it. I can see a whole marketing strategy now around <laughs> spiders. And, uh... Yes. <laughs> we don't want them. <laughs> we, we have seen this on more than one client survey as a request. I don't want creepy crawlies in my house. <laughs> We've got the solution. Uh, I, for me, like I know it's subjective, but for me, it was the, the selling point, I suppose, or that point where I was like, uh-huh, was when we realized we could control or manage the, uh, the relative humidity of in you know, a home. Um, and you know, it, once you just dive into that a little bit, you can see that humidity levels sitting higher than sort of eighty percent um, for even short periods of time can can bring on mold growth, and those viruses or nasties can exist in that air as well that can make people sick within that home. So just having that ability, um, especially when the humidity level outside is high, and if you're opening your windows, obviously then that humidity level is going to be the same inside. Whereas if if it's high, then outside you can have that option to close the doors and windows and, and let the HRV system or ERV system uh, manage that for you. So that was my moment where I was like, this is amazing. That, that's it. And it's interesting, um, just as a little technical background, um, ventilation, heat recovery ventilation units can have different types of cores in them. So in the southern states for Australia, and we kind of probably draw a line from sort of a little bit north of Sydney across to Perth and sort of say, 
that's kind of HRV territory. And in that HRV territory, we're just getting, it's called sensible only heat transfer, but let's think of that just as temperature transfer. When we go to uh, more humid climates up into Brisbane, we start thinking about ERV cores. And that's, as you mentioned, where we can start to apply some different types of control to humidity management. Can I get you to expand on the two, the difference between the two, if that's okay? Yeah, yeah, it gets quickly technical, but I'll try and keep <laughs> it light and fluffy as much as possible. <laughs> so um, we actually, and I guess 10 years ago, we actually started probably going by gut feel. But about probably four years ago, we actually worked with um, Zendo, one of our suppliers, to um, set up a monitoring um, system on a certified passive house. So we knew the air tightness levels were all right. Everything else was right. And we actually um, alternated cores. So one of the, the beauties of lots of systems is you can pull out a HRV core and put an ERV core in there. And to quickly understand the difference there, HRV core, as we said, think of that as a plastic type film. It's impervious to moisture movement. So any excess moisture that comes through there when the temperature conditions are right is going to drop out as condensation and disappear, but uh, probably only in small quantities. If we think of ERV, we can now think of that a little bit like a piece of paper. Um, it's not actually a piece of paper, but it has the ability to transfer heat from one side to the other, but also uh, let's assume that paper got wet. We can actually do some moisture transfer as well. Mm. Now, the real smarts in the technology is that we can allow moisture transfer without any air transfer. So those moisture part droplets, not even droplets, there's vapour particles, if you like, are smaller than the air molecules. So we can actually allow those through because it's pretty critical, obviously, that we're not allowing air leakage or transfer from an, an exhaust stream into a supply stream. We don't, we don't want to mix toilet odour with any fresh air. Yeah. So anyway, we ran this uh, trial for a bit over 12 months and we um, put in HRV core for several months at a time and then the ERV core to really establish a good baseline of what gave better performance. And so for um, Sydney climate, this was a suburban Sydney build, um, not on the coast, so inland a little. Um, we, we actually found that uh, HRV cores came out the winner. So again, delving just into a little more technical detail, the HRV core uh, has a slightly higher efficiency than the ERV core when we talk about temperatures or the sensible component of that heat transfer. I might get you to just explain um, how, in, in basic terms how that system actually works because I feel like we might have actually skipped over this little <laughs> crucial part of <laughs> the HRV system, how it works in a, in a very basic sense. Yeah, okay. So continuous flow rates, we're supplying fresh filtered air into all the habitable spaces in a home. So bedrooms, living rooms, studies and so forth. And we're extracting from anywhere that's wet or odorous. So bathrooms, toilets, mud rooms, uh, anything that meets that definition. Always uh, absolutely balanced. Um, we don't want to pressurise or depressurise uh, for a number of reasons. One, um, we're, we're 
using unnecessarily some extra fan power when we try to pressurize or depressurize. Maximum heat recovery efficiency occurs at balanced flow rates. Um, and if we were to depressurize or overpressurize, again, we're forcing or drawing um, air through the building fabric, which is really not what we want to do because that will bring with it moisture and we get into this interstitial moisture condensation kind of problem. Um, so always balanced um, ventilation. So applying that back into our quick case study that we did, uh, what we found was the HRV core and it was beneficial with its little bit of extra sensible or temperature related heat recovery. Where the ERV core we'd hoped was gonna come into the fore is in, uh, for Australian climates, higher summer humid conditions, so higher outdoor humidity. And in essence, um, you can think about moisture transfer in the same way you can think about heat transfer. If we've got a really moist airstream and a less moist airstream, we move uh, air from the really moist to the less moist. And so, Summer in Sydney, quite humid outside. If we get the relative humidity or the absolute humidity down inside the building, and that might come from a dehumidifier, comes from AC use. So even just your standard split when it's cooling will pull out some moisture. As we bring in that humid outside air in through the heat exchanger, we actually strip away some of that moisture to the outgoing exhaust air stream. And so that way we can actually reduce the load on internal cooling and also reduce the humidity level in that supply airstream. Uh, so that's the, that's the concept. What we found in Sydney was A, the period is moderately short of high humidity levels. Mm -hmm. And by relatively short, we, we can still be talking a couple of months. But we also found uh, correctly that when there's purge cooling going on, which is another element of um, high performance building. And that's where when your building's overheated in summer and you've got some temperature or diurnal temperature drop at night, open your windows and allow uh, that cooler air into the building to help bring your temps down in preparation for the next day. We found that purge cooling process was actually allowing moisture in anyway. And so our moisture control under those circumstances wasn't uh, wasn't really achieving as much as it might in a much more humid climate where you could use it over longer periods. So the crux of that was, unless you're prepared to buy two cores and do all this changing for Sydney climate and sort of anywhere the less humid than that, uh, HRV cores are a clear winner. The one little uh, note footnote I'll make to that is uh, alpine regions, and we don't have a lot of that in Australia. But we have done a project at Mount Hotham and another one um, in another alpine area. And for those projects, um, the wintertime humidity levels is actually a problem in being too low. And mm. so a bit like reversing the logic for summer, we want to actually retain some of the internal humidity generated from cooking or showering or whatever it is, rather than exhaust all that and bring outside air humidity, which has got really low moisture levels in it. Um, we, prob we probably know kind of through good building science that there's actually a band we want to keep internal relative humidity in. And it's probably something like 40 to 60 somewhere in that space. Once we get into 30s uh, and, and approaching 20, it's a pretty uncomfortable environment in terms of 
really dry skin and so forth. Yeah, I still remember some some winter winter days back home in Germany when you would have the the heating running really high because it's really cold outside and then you fall asleep and you wake up and you just have the heating on for way too high and everything just like you have a headache you're dried out you're super thirsty that's the worst waking up with that heating headache that's what I want to call it (laughs) so yeah it definitely shows there's importance of keeping that balance Um, but speaking about balance we've mentioned you know passive house before that's probably something that doesn't apply to a lot of people uh, in Australia yet. Um, does every house need or benefit from mechanical ventilation or what's kind of your target house um, that you that you would be working on? Yeah, good question. So if, if we start in the really simple form of mechanical ventilation, we can consider bathroom extract fans as mechanical ventilation. Don't have heat recovery in there, but they do, it is mechanical ventilation. And I don't think you'd find too many people these days that argue you don't need a bathroom exhaust fan or a toilet exhaust fan. So at the really simple level, we're already using mechanical ventilation. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I would probably expand that to be, uh, and a question we get often is, what's the threshold for when we can start using HRV systems in a, in a, in a building? Is it... Is it five air changes per hour at 50 pascals when you do your blower door test or is it, is it more or less? Uh, and, and my engineering answer to that is that it doesn't make sense to have a cutoff number. So being at 5.5 uh, and moving to 4.5 in an air tightness scenario doesn't suddenly massively change the requirements for ventilation or heat recovery benefits. So we need to kind of think of it in a sliding scale kind of manner. Mm -hmm. And so if we started out at 10 air changes per hour, 50 pascals, which we consider to be relatively leaky, uh, it might be where a really really basic build sits if you've paid no attention to any kind of air tightness. Mm -hmm. Um, Out at that level, you're definitely going to want to have mechanical um, extract fans in there. You might start to consider some um, fresh air ventilation. At at that level, you're not going to get much out of heat recovery um, in terms of that energy benefit. Mm -hmm. Um, You get a little bit of comfort benefit, but you don't want to be spending much out at 10 air changes per hour because the the benefits you're going to reap from an expensive system are pretty small. Uh, so in that really simple scenario, you might actually have um, just a, a fan, a filtered supply air fan that can give you what we'll call trickle ventilation. Um, and trickle ventilation, yeah, we might be sort of talking um, sort of 10 litres a second or something like that, just really low levels, just to keep a bit of air movement through the house. We obviously don't want to ramp that up too much in a non-heat recovery scenario. The more outside air we put in there that's not um, tempered, the more we're going to create some discomfort and drive up heating cooling demand. So we need to be pretty careful about how much we deliver there. As you work your way down the spectrum to passive house, which we know requires 0.6 air changes per hour, we start to... Uh, change the products we use and increase the spend on um, on that sort of system. Let's say we're at, um, and, and these are arbitrary numbers, we're at 
seven air changes per hour. We might start mm -hmm. thinking about a bathroom exhaust fan that's a high-low continuous run type of model. So uh, has a switch to drive it into its high ventilation rate when you're showering or um, toilet use. But when you turn that off, or perhaps it's driven by occupancy, it drops back into a ventilation rate that's maybe a third of its maximum. So we might go from 30 litres per second, perhaps, back down to sort of 8 litres a second as a continuous background ventilation. Now that really helps us with making sure all bathrooms are really well dried out. So that, that's the obvious risk with inter, what we'll call intermittent mechanical ventilation for a bathroom. You uh, jump in, you shower up, you jump out as you head to work, you flick the fan off. We, we don't, no one wants to leave their fan run uh, for the whole day. Still a heap of moisture in there. In winter, there's nowhere for that moisture to go. It's, it's just turning, just being absorbed by your surfaces or ultimately turning into mold growth if you've done nothing with it. Um, high, low, low continuous ventilation makes sure that dries out. So... Um, that's, that's kind of a good um, spend. They're moderately cheap, those sorts of fans. You might go from 100 bucks to three or $400 perhaps. Um, a couple of those in your build, it gives you that kind of um, performance. Um, we need to be just a fraction mindful where that makeup air is coming from. So um, one of the challenges of having unbalanced ventilation is we don't know where that air path is. So is the makeup air or air that needs to come into the building to fill that vacuum that's been created by an exhaust fan? Does it come through our roof space? Does it come through our garage? Is it over mouldy um, insulation bats with some rat droppings and things like that? So we've got to think a little bit about what are the air quality implications. You might actually have a dedicated like a trickle vent in your build somewhere so we can kind of define the path that that comes in. As we start to move further into tighter buildings, so five and lower, we're definitely in the HRV zone there. So, um, but again, don't, uh, don't necessarily go for the premium system at that kind, of, um, that kind of level. You can start to think about entry level systems and what you want. And as you work your way down, build your spend. Mm -hmm. um, the logic is that there's plenty of data that shows even those 10 air change per hour, what we consider leaky buildings to be, still um, can accumulate large um, levels of contaminants. So particularly CO2, which we use often as a marker because it's the easy one to measure. Um, but there's plenty of data that we've collected locally showing um, elevated CO2 levels in bedrooms overnight. So a master bedroom door closed is going well above sort of that thousand ppm threshold that we're keen to stay under. So, um, so yeah, leaky building doesn't mean a ventilated building. And we also don't know the ventilation path as well. So we don't know anything about the quality of that air. Yeah, that's a bit of a misconception, I feel. There is a definite difference between ventilation and leaking leakiness you know it's um and i think yeah you've, you've very much clarified or defined what ventilation is um the one thing i just wanted to mention is that you probably would like to have a baseline of air changes for a house to be able to ascertain what the best possible solution is for that home so the easiest way to do that is, is a blower door test and i know joe you've, you've referenced a few of the uh, terminologies that we use there um, 
describing what those uh, you know, ACH is, air changes an hour, and we use uh, the benchmark of 50 pascals so that we can always have, um, you know, it's basically an international uh, volume or rate, sorry, that we test at so that we can always have a consistent um, re result from those tests. So, yeah, if anyone wants to just know whether they should look at uh, ventilation or what type of ventilation would be best for their home, then the, the first step is probably to get a blower door test and just set your benchmark or your baseline. And then, yeah, you can speak to someone like Joel and uh, he'll be able to uh, help you out from there. Yeah, that's a good um, good little segue into the question of at what point during a project do you get involved? So is this something that should be considered during the design of a new house, the construction of a new house, or is it even possible to you know, fit one in after the fact, you know, if people um, live in an existing home, they do get a blower to test or they they want to make some air tightness changes um, and they're also then interested in getting some mechanical ventilation. Is that something that's possible as well? Yeah, so good question. Um, it's always easier, like 99% of things, to put it in when it's being built and it, it'll be lower cost and you'll be able to get a more effective system design. So um, we love to be involved at that design development phase. And in practical that terms, that really just means as soon as you've mapped out your um, floor plan, um, that's the time to kind of chat. Once you've locked that away, we know basically the duct routing and we can start talking about spatials and whether there's any structural things that might be impacted. So the later you leave that in the process, the more things we've got to we've got to deal with mm. uh, in that process. Retrofit projects are certainly possible. Um, they are always going to be more expensive and potentially have some compromises. But um, for those in the sort of um, technical space, there there are decentralised units as opposed to ducted units, and it's probably something we've not discussed yet. But uh, decentralised in a, in a resi context is something that um, we'd also call through wall. Uh, and so it's actually got a wall tube um, uh, that carries um, that airflow. Typically, there's components in that wall tube. So they do have minimum effective wall thicknesses, we'll call it. And so for the typical Australian build, often our wall assemblies aren't quite thick enough. We need to be up around about that 300 millimeter mark usually because we've got fans in there and we might even have the heat exchanger itself in that wall tube. Um, swings and roundabouts with some of those um, systems, obviously in a retrofit scenario, it's a lot easier to just penetrate a wall, uh, put a unit in. Uh, the higher performance units are typically single point. So they will only service one room. There are some um, other products that are we'll call push-pull, so two unit heads simultaneously working together. So we're not pressurizing or depressurizing, but one is supplying one unit head and the other is extracting, and you can park those in different rooms. So you ventilate two rooms and kind of the space between. Um, these are more solutions that are supply air zones. Um, the challenge a little bit with wet areas and decentralized um, ventilation is A, we can't position them in, them in the best position, which would be at a ceiling line for a, above a shower in the bathroom, for example. 
And so our steam and moisture capture is not great. Uh, in the kind of the push-pull type scenario, when it's on its supply air stroke, it's actually driving that moisture into the rest of the house. And so that kind of use is, is not great. So uh, on a performance basis, a ducted system will always outperform decentralized mm -hmm. for a few reasons. As we've discussed, it's kind of the precise location of supply and extract points um, to make sure there's no short circuiting and that we're capturing um, odors and contaminants at the closest possible point. Um, we also typically find ducted systems have got higher um, heat recovery efficiencies uh, and obviously noise can be lower because the unit can be positioned in a, a less sensitive area. We've talked about price um, a little bit here and there, or you've mentioned it a couple of times. Can you give us a rundown of what people would have to expect to pay if they wanted to get um, a yeah, mechanical ventilation unit? Maybe speaking of, of these two um, examples you just mentioned of decentralized and centralized. Yeah, yep. So the kind of entry level point, I guess, is uh, decentralized push-pull type units. And they're probably going to run you in the order of $1,400 to $1,800, something like that for a pair. They'll deliver 60 cubic meters per hour, typically around that number, 50, 60 on higher speeds. So they're good to do a couple of rooms. So you get a couple of bedrooms out of there. Um, must be installed in pairs in that kind of um, product so that we maintain that balanced flow rate. Um, and you can apply multiples of those. So if you were ignoring wet area extract in your typical um, four bedroom house and a living space, you, maybe you might put three sets in. So mm -hmm. let's say you're kind of at that $5,000 mark, something like that, plus some install. Uh, when you step up into ducted, you go up a little bit in price, but you're now also managing your wet area extract better. And I'll mm -hmm. include kitchen in that as well. Kitchen, laundry, toilet, bathroom. Uh, and you're probably going to, for a typical three to four bed home, you're probably going to sit uh, in, a, in a reasonably wide range, depending on quality of unit and so forth, uh, somewhere between sort of as an installed cost, 12000 out to potentially 20000 as an installed cost. As I said, based on different performance of units, and um, different size of builds and number of outlets and so on and so on. Um, and, and it's probably useful to explain what's at one end of the spectrum and what's at the other. Um, it's a, a little bit about duct system. Um, so duct systems have a fairly um, significant impact on um, actual performance. We mm -hmm. want to make sure they're nice and airtight, they're not leaky so that our supply air is not bleeding away. We want to make sure they're cleanable because mm -hmm. ultimately in five to seven years, we want to be able to come back and effectively clean this ductwork. Um, we'll do our best to not um, draw contaminants into that ductwork by putting filters at various locations, but ultimately there's probably some uh, bypass on those filters. Um, so uh, duct systems, good quality duct systems make a part of that. And the other side is the HRV unit. Uh, and as, as your spend goes up, you get higher um, heat recovery efficiency, you get lower noises. And so um, both 
what we'll call case radiated noise, which is in the room where you've installed it, but also induct noise levels. So what are you hearing in your bedroom or your living room? Uh, um, you probably get some better filtration options uh, and you get um, probably lower um, power consumption when measured as a whole house system. Yeah, I might just get you to just maybe walk through what a typical installation of, of a ducted system looks like. So it's a lot like putting a uh, domestic hot water system or something in. There's essentially two parts or two phases to the installation. There's a rough-in phase, which is where you're going to run all your stuff that sits above your plaster line that's no longer going to be accessible. And then there's a kind of a fit-off phase. So in that rough-in phase, you're going to get all your internal ductwork and your grill housings in place. And later on, you're going to be able to come back and fit off your grills and then your HRV unit under there. Uh, and just kind of recap positioning of those um, outlets. We're basically extracting from wet or odorous areas, supplying into habitable spaces. Um, our hallways and passageways and stairwells are known as transition zones. So we don't actually need to provide dedicated grills there typically because we've got movement from a supply air zone into an extract zone. And just to loop back one step on that, typically we're only ever going to have one grill in a given room. So we're not needing a supply air grill and an extract point in that one room. Because we're ventilating at nice low rates, we can actually pass that air under the door. And we typically only need that sort of eight to 10 mil undercut on a standard width door. So at night you can close your door in your bedroom, you can have darkness and silence and that, that air just uh, bleeds its way under the door and into the adjoining bathroom or extract zone. Once it's installed and plaster's been uh, put up and you've come back and fitted the grills, I imagine that you mentioned earlier on that you've got to balance the internal air. How do, how do you go about ensuring that that's the case, that it's balanced correctly? Is there a testing process or a commissioning process that's part of that as well? Yeah, certainly. So. Um, there's a range of sort of technology at HRV level as well. So some of the more advanced units will uh, assist the commissioning agent by having um, some flow control. Now, obviously at the HRV unit, that's just balancing total supply and total extract. We haven't yet, there's, there's nothing around that's gonna give you balanced flow rate or target flow rates in each individual room. And so there's still always a requirement for a commissioning agent to go around with a flow hood or a contractor and measure the extract or the supply air rate to each space. Now, good suppliers will provide uh, airflow design uh, and that will provide rates. So, for example, when we look at a, look at a floor plan, we'll say, look, there's a, um, there's a bathroom. We're going to need... Um, 40 cubic meters per hour extract from there. So in a passive house type context on boost, uh, and we're gonna need 20 cubes into that bedroom and 20 there. And so we are allocating uh, at the same time rates to different rooms, but we're having to make sure the totals add up on the supply mm. and the extract side. And so that's the role of the commissioning agent to make sure all those airflow rates are balanced uh, and we can say balanced at a what's known as a standard or a nominal ventilation rate, 
And then it's really typical to also then apply a boosted rate for um, shower use and cooking, or if you've got a larger number of people than normal in the house, where you apply 30 odd percent increase over that standard ventilation rate. Like that, so boosted rate, would that be, I, I know personal experience here, typically you'll see that maybe in a bathroom or a toilet where when you put on, you can hit a button like you would typically hit for an exhaust fan and it will go into boost mode for a certain period of time to just increase that air uh, extract, say after you've had a shower. That's um, that's what you mean by boost mode in that scenario as well? or Correct, yeah. So it's boosted rate. Obviously the system doesn't have any zoning, so you're boosting whole house extract and flow rates um, to introduce that zoning would just add unle unnecessarily levels of complexity and ultimately not much saving so you know in a high performance um, hrv unit good duct design um, so let's call it a 280 square meter three bed house hrv unit power consumption at the premium end of town is probably about 35 watts and even at the tier two kind of level you might be at 40 to maybe 45 watts. So they're, they're low energy consumption. So by trying to do this zoning that we might be familiar with heating and cooling, we're introducing componentry cost, points of failure, complexity for extremely little energy benefit. Speaking about something like boost mode or just in general, I could imagine people being a little bit concerned about noise. And you've mentioned it before, depending on what system you get, there's lower noise that comes with it. How loud are these systems? Is this something that you will hear on an ongoing basis or can you just, yeah, it's just, it's not really an issue, the noise part of it. Yeah, I always love the how loud are they going to be. Noise is a, is a pretty challenging topic to uh, quantify for, um, for the average kind of user or everyone in general. Um, fortunately at Fantech, we also sell a heap of products around acoustic uh, silences so everyone's got a pretty good understanding of noise levels and noise analysis and the things that affect those uh, because it ultimately is the thing that the customer is going to pick up on uh, in a finished product no one's really going to pick up the difference between let's say 90 percent and 87 percent effective heat recovery that doesn't <laughs> pop up on your bill as well, jeepers hrv is a little less efficient than i'd have planned on yeah. <laughs> but the bit if it's noisy it's in your ear 24 7 every day mm -hmm. of the week that's there so that is really the pain point for clients and so it's important that we start way back at the beginning on system design appropriate sized hrv selection so we don't want a unit that's running right up near its peak capacity for too much of the time. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure we've got some attenuation or silencing in that duct system. And we want to make sure we've located the HRV in an appropriate spot too. We don't, we don't want to go putting it into a walk-in robe uh, behind a master bedroom, for example. Yeah. <laughs> we, we want it ideally in a wet area like a laundry. Um, that, that kind of makes sense. So... Um, yeah, noise is a fairly critical thing. I, I think for the lay person, it's going to be really difficult to do the effective analysis to understand that. I think you've really got to pick yourself a good reputable supplier of equipment who understands the limitations of each piece of equipment uh, and can 
yeah, can provide some explanation if you're really interested in that noise level stuff, can sort of break down, here's the, the unit noise output, here's what our silencer does, so this yeah. is the noise level and the duct work. Um, and ultimately the last complicating factor is the room furnishings and wall coverings mm. uh, impact perceivable noise. So whilst we can give you an exact sound power level at a grill, the way it's perceived by the occupant is completely different in a tile bathroom versus a soft furnished lounge room. Yeah, that's very that's very true. I maybe just a little anecdote from that um, visit that I mentioned before, where we saw the um, the HIV unit, and I was really surprised by the possibilities of filtering out dust and and you know mosquitoes and stuff like that. Um, I was also surprised. We actually did the test. We put the machine or the the system into boost mode it was located in a laundry in a cupboard um so we put it into boost mode i closed the cupboard um we have a little video of that i'll make sure to put that up on the page for the podcast as well because you couldn't hear a thing maybe if you close the cupboard and you're standing there and you're really listening to it and this was a house that was you know in the final touches of of being built so there was nothing on the walls nothing on the floors no furniture nothing so you would really hear it um so you can maybe hear a little humming noise if you're standing right in front of the cupboard and you know you're really listening for it but the moment you go out of the laundry and close that door you can't hear it even in boost mode um and i think that was a yeah quite average sized can't remember if it was three or four bedrooms but mm -hmm. like an average sized home so yeah just speaking of experience um if, if you're concerned about noise i think in you know in your normal everyday living conditions it's not something that you actually notice that's it, from that's my it. experience and particularly bedrooms who want to be quiet you're laying there we know from a variety of different ventilation products there's a range of uh super tolerant sleepers to those who will hear a, a cricket move yeah. kind of thing and so um, we need to kind of cater for the really fussy end of town um, mm -hmm. and um, the passive house institute do provide some guidelines for noise levels at, at grills for um, utility rooms can obviously be a bit higher a laundry or a bathroom can tolerate higher levels but they've got quite low thresholds for um, bedrooms in particular so um my view is they should be virtually imperceptible. When you lay there silently in bed, you might hear the slightest little bit of airflow noise, but it certainly shouldn't be a hum or a loud noise. It should be, should be yeah, very, very quiet and um, non-intrusive. Yeah. yeah, again, in my experience, yeah, there's no audible um, noise at all from the flow rate comparative to say a split air system, which is very evident yeah. when you're in the room. <laughs> um, one of the other questions we do get a lot uh, is what's for those who are not familiar with the systems, but maybe looking to, to um, introduce one into their build is what are the ongoing maintenance uh, requirements for a system um, or even the usability, you know, like how easy is this for me to understand it, use, the, you know, uh, the interface and, you know, what are the ongoing upkeeps required from, from our end once, you know, we've had the keys of the home handed to us. Yeah. So usability is, is a good question. HRV systems are really designed to sit in the background. Uh, they're not, not designed to be um, regularly tinkered with or adjusted apart from the use of these boost switches or whatever boosting mechanism is. Some might have an onboard 
uh, humidity sensor to boost for bathroom use and things like that. So they're designed to sit in the background and often we go to great lengths to dissuade people from trying to do an expensive integration into their home automation system. It's, it's like it's not worth the money because you're barely going to touch this thing uh, down the track. So um, yeah, that, that's the way they should exist. Um, you might um, put it into a, a low away mode if you go on holidays. Mm-hmm. So it's something we've probably not touched on is that there's benefit in having some baseline ventilation in order to um, give yourself some, your building some condensation protection because mm-hmm. even in really well-designed buildings, sometimes we can still find a little bit of moisture accumulation through condensation uh, and also it gives you that freshness when you return to your home. It doesn't feel like it's been um, locked up and stuffy. And in those kind of away modes, you might be using 10 watts or 15 watts. So again, power consumption shouldn't really be uh, a criteria for whether you put that on or off. Um, the other thing is it's not great to turn your HRV unit off fully for extended periods. Um, there's always a risk that um, you've made that decision to leave after jumping out of the shower uh, and it'll turn your HRV unit off and head off for two weeks and you've actually got some moisture in your ductwork still. Mm-hmm. And as much as that ductwork is really carefully um, designed in terms of materials and construction to be anti-mold growth and bacterial, we don't want to invite trouble by having moisture, high moisture levels in that ductwork. So even that, that really low ventilation rate that's costing you 10 watts is going to keep your HRV system in really good condition there. Um, in terms of maintenance requirements, um, so principally you've got filter changes and in essence um, they're there to capture, capture all those particles that are outside your home that you don't want in and it's probably worth delving just for a second into some of the detail. Um, the really good standard um, supply air filtration is what's known as F7 and it's kind of slightly been updated now to an ISO standard but I don't think mm-hmm. anyone kind of quite speaks that language yet. <laughs> Certainly not remember. So we'll pretend we're in inches instead of centimetres still. Uh, so F7 on supply side, and that will get rid of all those particles down in that kind of two micron size, which are uh, particles that have health implications. There's kind of a, mm-hmm. a particle range there that will get um, through your respiratory system. That's the nasties. Bigger stuff than that gets blocked and caught up in um, various nose hairs and bits and pieces, but there's a danger range in there. So we want to hit those. You'll notice there's two filters. So in a HRV unit, one's catching that outside air we talked about before it becomes supply air. The other one's actually um, catching the extract air or the air that's coming out of your bathroom uh, to your HRV unit. And its job is basically to protect the heat exchanger. So if you generate some internal internal dust particles or lint in your laundry, we don't want that getting up to the HRV unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, typically at extract points, we'll also put in some filters because we don't even really want that garbage in the extract ductwork. It's just going to accelerate the cleaning cycle needed. Uh, and so the second part of that obviously is filter changes, sorry, first, and around about six monthly is where you want to budget. Uh, at probably five years, you probably want to get a contractor back, pull the front off your unit, 
pull the HRV core out, give it a bit of a wash. They can go into a warm bath and that sort of stuff just to make sure there's no, um, yeah, no buildup of contaminants there. You might wipe out or vac out the fans. Sometimes you can get a little bit of dust accumulation there. Um, you might do an inspection at five years of ductwork just to make sure that visibly it looks okay. Uh, but probably somewhere between five and 10 years, you probably want to think about a duct clean. Uh, and the beauty of um, semi-rigid ductwork, which is, for those who aren't familiar with it, it's a bit like ag pipe you'll buy in Bunnings um, without all the slots in it and with a separate internal lining. Um, the beauty of that is there's duct cleaning systems that work really well on that. You can access them from the grills. You don't really need to disassemble anything. You essentially put a, a duster on a string up there and hook a vacuum to it and you can quite effectively clean out your duct system to return it to sort of as new condition. Well, I've kind of saved the, the more controversial question for like the end bit of our, of our chat. Um, I know everyone's been talking about the new um, changes that will be introduced into the building code by next year. Um, so we're going from six stars to seven stars. Energy rating, um, we've, yeah, have talked about this before as well. And one thing that's been introduced before in the uh, building code as well is this mandatory, you know, if you're going below five air changes, it's mandatory to have mechanical ventilation. Um, but you've mentioned before, you know, that it, it's, there's, it's not a real cutoff number or it's not, you know, 5.5, it's fine, but at five, you desperately need it. Um, it's a little bit more, yeah, it, it, it's, not, it's a little bit more gray than that. Um, so there are people out there who say, you know, I don't really need mechanical ventilation. I'm just going to make sure that the house is not going to be super airtight, you know, have natural ventilation. I can just open a window and I'll just, you know, achieve the same thing. What is it that you say to these people? I know you've kind of mentioned it before, you know, there's different systems for different houses and, um, you know, there's, it's kind of a sliding range, but what if people are just 100% against mechanical ventilation? Is there something you usually say? <laughs> to convince them otherwise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's interesting that um, five air change per hour threshold that's kind of in the code. I guess the first point I'd make out is that, or make that, is that they've presented that as a fresh air supply requirement. It's got nothing to do with condensation management or um, extract there. So um, we would easily argue that continuous ventilation is probably just or more important on the extract side for condensation management purposes at under five air changes, but it's not kind of been structured that way uh, is my understanding. Uh, it's also, I think from memory, um, only in one of the volumes of the NCC. And so I think it might only apply to class two multi-res. Don't quote me on it particularly, but I don't think it's actually applying to single dwellings. So I, I don't think suddenly there's a requirement for uh, a three ACH resi class one building to have some mechanical ventilation in there. Um, it would be nice if it did exist. Um, what We've worked hard, and when I say we, the Australian Passive House Association, I'm a former director there, um, we put forward a submission or a proposal for change to the ABCB 
prior to the 2022 update for um, some continuous ventilation uh, recognition under the condensation management um, mm -hmm. section there. And Anthony, obviously, you and I have intimate knowledge of this based on some projects uh, that the performance solution and workaround is a bit of an arduous process uh, to demonstrate that the lower continuous rates uh, meet that. So um, NCC certainly got some work to be done there in order for uh, heat recovery ventilation systems to become easily and simply applied. They are clearly a high performance way to ventilate and they should be recognised in the building code. Um, so that story uh, kind of aside, how would we go about convincing um, those who are sceptical of the benefits of um, ventilation and heat recovery ventilation particularly? Uh, the first point I would probably make and the, the important one is you're doing it for indoor air quality and health reasons. So we can also demonstrate some energy savings compared to having your windows open um, in terms of save heating and cooling. Uh, there's definitely comfort compared to open windows, but indoor air quality, guaranteed indoor air quality is principally the thing you're shooting for. And so when people say, look, it's not really worth the cost or it's too expensive, uh, I'm immediately asking the question, exactly how have you valued health? And I'm not aware of anyone um, globally who's yet got a great answer to how have we valued um, health. I know in the US at Berkeley, there's some people who are trying to start to build some models. They're still needing lots of data to go into there and they start talking about extended life years and things like that in relation to indoor air quality and trying to price health. But it's still a pretty abstract kind of model. And so to make a, a cost judgment against indoor air quality to me doesn't make a lot of sense. Agreed, we've all got to make some practical decisions about total project build. But if you're saying, oh, look, I'm weighing up the, uh, the flash two-pack kitchen with bar marble bench tops versus my <laughs> HRV, I, I know which way I'm going. But mm. everyone's got to make that value judgment for themselves. Um, the other, other scenario I always like is, A, build a little bit smaller. If you want those really good functionality things, you want, even want the bench top still, build a little bit smaller. We've still got a pretty bad habit of building oversized buildings. Um, and also make sure you get the important elements that you can't retrofit easily afterwards. So that's always going to be mm -hmm. building envelope, like get those good quality windows in there, get good levels of insulation. HRV drops into that, that bucket as well. Get that installed. In the really worst instance, get your ductwork in and uh, apply the HRV in it uh, a year later when you've digested the total construction cost and you've recovered, a, your bank balance has recovered a fraction, fit it off then. Um, but to yeah, dismiss it on a cost basis doesn't have a lot of logic to me. Um, and, and we see comparison also to heating and cooling air conditioning systems. Like I can get, I can get uh, three installed split systems for the price of that. It's like, well, yeah, they're delivering different kind of outcomes. So to compare the two doesn't make any rational sense. 
Um, and I'd also suggest that uh, measuring the benefits in a short time frame of indoor air quality is difficult. And unless you drop into that um, severely impacted category. So if you're immunocompromised or really uh, severe asthma sufferer or um, hay fever sufferer, in those instances, you'll pick up the, the tangible benefits super quickly. But for mm -hmm. the average person, it's probably not something you uh, necessarily mark on a, a daily basis. Um, yeah, so, so it's, it's challenging to even perceive that. But over the longer period, uh, there's definitely demonstrated benefits to better indoor air quality. Yeah, complete agreeance, Joel. Like, it, yeah, in all of our uh, research as well as is indicated, just like the never-ending list of benefits for having a good indoor air quality from the ability to be able to uh, absorb and retain information like in education situations right through to those who are more sensitive to mould bloom or, or just dust or, or smoke. I know there's people who have experienced some really horrific indoor air quality um, due to burn-offs or recent bushfires over the last few summers. Um, the HRV system with the appropriate filtration system can even mitigate smoke um, coming into a home, I'm fairly certain. So, um, yeah, there's just it just goes on. And um, when you, as you mentioned, it is subjective to what value you put on health. But if for most people, I imagine that there probably isn't a number they can define it with. And uh, it's very, very much worth, you know, considering that you can you can solve that problem here. Yeah, great way to to kind of bring this episode to an end. Um, yeah, there's no real value you can put on health. So that's definitely something I think pe more people need to consider. It's not just about the looks of the home. It's also a bit like it's more so about how your home can, can be a safe space for you and your family and yeah, be a, a haven for health and for joy and for comfort and not only for, you know, a couple of years, but for a lifetime. So I think that's really what it is about at the end of the day. Um, Joel, we'll make sure to keep uh, to put all your contact details where people can reach you if they have more questions or if you know if they want to get get some more information on what they can do in their specific home into our show notes on our website, um, so people can make sure to check that out and reach you reach you there. Um, yeah, nothing left for me to say other than thank you so much for taking the time and explaining how important ventilation is to homes. And I'm sure if there's, you know, more questions coming up and new systems being introduced that we'll be chatting to you again sometime in the future. Lovely. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to chat on uh, ventilation, something I'm passionate about, something I'd uh, suggest everyone at least explores the option of ventilation for their, for their home and so forth. At least go down that path, get the numbers, get the understanding of benefits and so forth don't don't be in that ignorant side of the fence which just goes cost nah it's not worth it <laughs> do, do the research there's pe lots yep. of smart people out there who can assist you in that space already it might feel like it's a needle in a haystack search because we don't necessarily all run big ads and banners promoting our our wares but those people do exist and reach out to your networks you'll find us Awesome. We'll make sure to, to link that and yeah, enjoy the rest of your day and thank you again for your time. Lovely. Thanks. Nice to chat to you, Sandra and Anthony.
Thank you for listening to the Outlier Podcast. You can find helpful links and contact information regarding this episode in our show notes and on our website, outlierstudio.com.au forward slash podcast. If you have a question for us or want to share some feedback about this episode, feel free to send us a message or comment on Instagram or Facebook. Until next time on the Outlier Podcast.